Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. It's the first Lord's Day of the month. It's the first Lord's Day of the year. And we have come to the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 77. So in a moment, we'll turn to Psalm 77. But first, let's look at Revelation chapter 5. It'll provide a little bit of context for what is happening in Psalm 77. So in a moment, Psalm 77, but first, Revelation chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. One of the angels, but one of the elders, said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. And all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then I heard the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. John looks up. And he sees a sight that makes him sad. It is a scroll bound with seven seals in the right hand of God Almighty. It is the decrees and plans and judgments of God not yet unfurled or revealed. You know how sometimes you choose an order of worship? Maybe that's just me. And you find out that it fits perfectly because it's the first Lord's Day of the year. 
Because it's as if John were to look into the heavens and to see the scroll of the will and decree of God for 2024 gripped in his right hand, unknown to us. And John weeps. And we look ahead and do we not tremble? What, what does this year hold? And one of the elders comes and says, John, don't weep. Stop looking at the scroll. Look at the lion who is a lamb. He is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. We call this the year of our Lord 2024. With good reason. It's his year. The lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain, has seized the decrees and commands of God and unlocked them. We have only to look to him. And those who look to Christ as king and head of the church, as king and head of history, have only one response repeated three times. They worship the lamb. They worship the lamb. Those who are before the lamb worship the lamb. Those who are around the throne worship the lamb. Those who are in heaven, earth, sea, and all that is in them worship the lamb. And so let us worship the lamb this year. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 77, our psalm of the month. Psalm 77. We again are treated to a psalm in which the author, like John, is looking upon a situation that makes him weep. And the psalmist, in reviewing this sad experience from his own personal life, writes out these words that he might give them to the chief musician, that we might sing them in the congregation, that we might learn to pray through our sad experiences with him. So here again, the word of the Lord, Psalm 77. To the chief musician, to Jedithan, a psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was outstretched in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God. And was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old. The years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. And my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Salah. And I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. 
I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen and amen. Have you ever come to the end of a sporting event, a competition, and found that it, the final minutes were filled with more drama than the whole first part? It's a soccer game and there's more goals in the overage time than in the 90 minutes prior. It's a football game and there's more touchdowns in the last two minutes than in the rest of the game. Have you ever come to a conversation where after 90 minutes, all of a sudden you find yourself talking about things you didn't think were going to be part of this conversation? And you find yourself at a loss for words. Have you ever come to a sermon, no, maybe that's just me, where you get to the conclusion and you think to yourself, that is not what I intended to preach today. When I was a young preacher, it was not uncommon that I would get to the conclusion of my sermon and I would say out loud, but really just to myself, well, that wasn't what I intended to do. It's one of the consequences of preaching without notes. Finally, my ruling elder pulled me aside and said, you don't need to tell us that. (laughs) Have you ever observed that whether it's a sporting event or a conversation or a sermon, That the vast majority of our life and life's experiences end in ways we could have never predicted or expected. That we are very seldom in control of all the things we think we're in control of. Psalm 77 comes to us as the choir of God, singing with and under the choir master. That we might learn How to sing in those moments when we realize we have completely lost control of our life. Of our thoughts and of our feelings. When we realize how powerless we are in the grip of the gravity that is pulling us along. Beloved, the psalm before us is intended to open our eyes to the truth. That God saves in weird ways. That God works out His will for our salvation in most unexpected places. And so we should trust Him. And take comfort in Him. And be unafraid at the things we face. Let's look at the psalm together this morning. 
Notice in the subtitle, it is addressed, as I've mentioned twice, to the chief musician. That we should sing it as the choir. No longer do we have a chief musician like in the days of the Levites. Now we are the choir. And the chief musician, who was a historical Levitical person, was that type and shadow of Christ. That we should know that this is a psalm that we sing in union with Christ. He is our chief musician. He is our choir master. But further, the psalm is addressed from two names. One is Jeduthun and one is Asaph. In the Psalter, we have some psalms from Jeduthun and we have some psalms from Asaph. Since Psalms 73 through 83 are all those ten psalms, psalms of Asaph, it is likely that this psalm is actually Asaph's, that he is the creator. Thus we have a psalm of Asaph. But there is this reference to Jeduthun, a fellow psalm writer, one of Asaph's friends, one of David's friends. There is this little group of Levitical leaders, Jeduthun, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and David, who together were filled with the Spirit and writing out of their thoughts and feelings and life's experiences created for the church of Jesus Christ songs to sing with Christ. But notice, though this seems to have some parallel between Jeduthun and Asaph, some sort of cooperation, some sort of collaboration, we're not sure how, they say, I. Verse 1, I cried out to God with my voice. For the sake of argument, let us say that this is Asaph as the author. He is expressing some experience that he has had in which he cried aloud with his voice to God with my voice. A common turn of phrase that in the Hebrew simply means I prayed. I was in prayer to God and he gave ear to me. Asaph is remembering a time in which he was moved to persistent and fervent prayer and found that prayer answered. Asaph has already in verse 1 given us a good hint. He's revealed the conclusion. This is going to end well. I'm going to take you through some troubled times, but as we go through those difficulties, be patient, loved ones, because he did hear me. This will answer in the end. God will answer. In verse 2, Asaph says that in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My outstretched hand in the night was without ceasing. My soul refused comfort. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. We receive now our first Salah. Asaph tells us to pause and to contemplate on this idea. He has a vision in mind. His soul refuses comfort. That is to say, in the middle of the night, rather than a head resting on a pillow, wrapped in a warm blanket and finding comfort in sleep, Instead, Asaph's hands are outstretched in prayer. And all night long, like Moses in the daytime in the battle with the Amalekites, Asaph's hands are upright and empty. His hands do not grab drink. They will not help him. His hands do not grab food. His hands do not grab pillow or blanket. His hands do not grab friend or loved one. 
His hands are empty and outstretched. Prayer will solve this problem, or it won't be solved. Asaph has bet everything on prayer. Beloved, notice the importance of prayer. Asaph is in deep sorrow. Such sorrow that he has come to recognize there is no comfort for his soul in any other earthly answer. There's no human that can fix this. There's no food, drink, diet, exercise that can fix this. As as we begin 2024, let us begin with hands outstretched and empty. Knowing that what we need most, God and God alone can provide. Not grasping, not holding fast, but hands outstretched and open, saying, Father, give. If I were to be very bold, let us begin with hands outstretched. There's a prayer meeting tonight, 6 p.m. Consider praying and begin 2024 with hands outstretched. Beloved, what are you doing this week? How will you begin this year in terms of family worship, private devotions? Will you empty those hands and stretch them out and without ceasing say, Father, it must come from you. The answer I need is from you. And so my hands are empty until you fill them. Asaph then begins to recount how it is he has come to this dreadful conclusion that there is no comfort outside of God. First, he says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. This gripping of the eyes and parting them so that he cannot sleep connects back to that hand outstretched. That all through the night, Asaph has no comfort in sleep because God has filled his mind and heart with so many troubles and disturbances. And there in the night and in the dark, his mind begins to fill with days of old and ancient times and songs that he has sang in the night. And there in the dark, alone in his bed, sleepless and disturbed, born under the weight of much despair and depression, he meditates in his heart and his spirit makes diligent search. All his thought is given to this. All his heart is searching for this. He is longing intensely for an answer from God. He is longing for God to speak and God to respond. And again, I wonder, are we half so persistent in prayer as Asaph? Are we half so passionate in prayer as Asaph? Do you remember Jacob? who likewise at the brook of Peniel had a sleepless night. And God, the angel of the Lord, was there holding his eyelids open, wrestling him in the dirt at the shore of the river. And as they wrestled back and forth all through the night, the angel of the Lord could not overpower him. I don't know if you guys have ever read the stories of the angel of the Lord. But I'm pretty sure that the angel of the Lord could take Jacob at any moment. 
John Calvin's explanation of this story is brilliant. He says, with one hand, God wrestled with Jacob, and with the other hand, he held Jacob up and empowered him to wrestle back. And so it is with our prayer life. That Jacob, as dawn rises, grabs hold of the angel of the Lord and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I've already told you this story once before, but it bears repeating. Last summer, we were sitting in Ireland listening to a great preacher who had very long pauses in his sermons. Just his normal cadence. And in the middle of the sermon, he looked at us and he said, For what have you stopped praying? And then he had his long pause. And inside, I begged him to talk. I didn't want to be left alone with that question. And yet, Psalm 77 brings it back to our hearts and our minds this morning as the year begins. As 2023 passes, what prayer requests passed for you? What did you give up on? To which the Spirit now whispers to you through Psalm 77, Hey, keep asking. Keep asking. Oh, to be persistent all night long until dawn comes. And to say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Father, I will not let you go until you reveal yourself to me. Until I know you for who you are, show yourself, Father. This bold and reckless prayer that is persistent and passionate. Asaph finds himself there at the edge of dawn, and he's not saying with Jacob, let me do not, I will not let you go until you bless me. He instead has come to these horrible rhetorical questions. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be merciful? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Six questions. When seven is the number of fullness, Asaph hasn't the heart to get to the seventh. He slams Selah on the page and says, no more questions. I cannot ask the seventh. Six is all my soul can bear. He has come to the utter end of hope. And in the darkest of the night, just before the dawn, Asaph is wrestling with God upon his bed Struggling with him and saying, my hands are empty, my heart is broken, my brain is whirling a mile a minute. Father, have you cast us off forever? Do you not speak anymore? Do you not come near anymore? Will you have no favor upon us? Will you have no mercy? Will your promise fail? Have you forgotten your grace? And has your anger sealed up mercy Have you ever come to the end and been like, you know what? I'm not happy with the way the world is working. 
And I'm not happy with God who has done it. Did you ever dare to think that it was pious to wonder if God was loving and good and to challenge him? Do you know what Jacob's name is the morning after Peniel? Israel. He who wrestles with God. We are not simply the people who follow God around like little puppies receiving pets from him. We are his beloved children who argue with him, who complain to him, who say, I don't like the way you're running the world. I've told the story before of a Friday morning where I was hiding from prayer groups in seminary. I had just heard awful news of how my brother's wife had abandoned him. And I didn't want to pray. And I didn't want to be in prayer group. And my professor came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay, we'll pray for you. And one by one, we begin to pray for each other and to say, I'm not afraid of your questions. Have you ever looked a fellow believer in the eye and said, I'm not afraid of your questions. I'm not afraid of your fears and I'm not afraid of your doubts. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of your fears and your doubts and your questions. I know the God who answers. And I know where to find the answer. And I'll let him answer. He's in charge. And this is what Asaph finds after this second Salah. He concludes in verse 10. This is my anguish. This is my infirmity. This is my weakness. That I am in a moment in time where I am stuck. And I cannot get out of it. I am in this place and in this hour and I cannot get free. My eyelids are open. Sleep is not coming. My friends are far off and I am alone. In fact, you see in the italics in that verse phrase, in that 10th verse, but I will remember. It's not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is, but I said, this is my anguish. The years of the right hand of the Most High. This is my anguish, that God and I are not on the same page. This is my anguish, that God's hand is on me, and I'm not happy about it. That that I have to deal with this God who is greater than me, with whom I cannot fight and overcome. And He's running my life a direction I don't want it to go. And He's doing with me things I don't want Him to do. And and I don't agree with God. We're not on the same page. We don't see eye to eye. This is my anguish, my weakness, my infirmity. That I am under the hand of the Most High. By the way, if if you think Asaph is alone, go read Jeremiah's story of his ministry. Jeremiah uses the same language. He said, I tried to get out of my job. I tried to quit being a prophet. 
And your word burned like a furnace within me. And my bones wasted away until I spoke. And I said, Lord, you're stronger than me. I tried to quit and you wouldn't let me. This is our anguish, beloved. This is our weakness. That it is with God we have to deal. It is with God that we have a relationship. And we can't get around it. We can't pretend it's something else. Whatever it is that you think it is. When we blame our bodies, when we blame our brains, when we blame our world, when we blame our society, and we step back and say, no, this is about me and my relationship to God gone awry. This is the heart of the matter. This is my anguish. Then he says in verse 11, I will remember the works of the Lord and the wonders of old. I will meditate on your work and talk of your deeds. Asaph's solution to the problem is first that he will remember the works and wonders which God has done. In Hebrew, remember is not merely to think about but to act upon. I will insist on living Like God's ancient works and wonders are still true today, even though I'm not experiencing them. I'm not experiencing victory over sin today. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remember that I am dead to transgressions and sins. And the next time temptation rears its ugly head, I'm going to say no. I'm going to live. Like the works and wonders of old are still with me, even though I don't see them, even though I don't feel them. I will remember these things are true, and I will live like there's an ark for this flood. And I will live like there's a land of promise that is already mine to possess. I will live like the Red Sea parts, even though I'm still feeling its water on my toes. I will remember I will meditate and talk. By meditate, Asaph speaks of a singular experience. By talk, he speaks of a communal experience. I will get alone with the promises of God and I will think about what God has said in his scriptures. I will read them and sing them and think about them and meditate on them. But I won't stay alone with my scriptures. This is not an individual sport. I will also talk. I will go and have conversations with brothers and sisters. I will go and have fellowship with my friends. And we will discuss these works and wonders. There's a brand new blog post out yesterday on gentle reformation by Jeff Stuyvesant. What do you do after worship is over? He gives many suggestions. One of which is talk about the sermon. Have a conversation about the works and wonders of God. With one another. In this practice, Asaph, in the midst of this long dark night, wrestling mightily with God as he is, engages with the works and wonders of God, resolved to live by faith, to practice what he believes, even though he cannot see it, surrounding himself with fellow believers with whom he can have communion and conversation. Asaph discovers. Two great truths about God. First, his way is in the sanctuary, verses 13 through 15. Second, 
His way is in the sea, verses 16 through 19. What does Asaph mean when he says that God's way is in the sanctuary? He means that God, the one with whom we are wrestling, is not far off. Not utterly transcendent. Trans, what's that word? Transcendent. That's the word. He is not so utterly transcendent that when I talk to him, it just evaporates in the atmosphere. But rather, God's way is in the sanctuary. The relationship with God that I am seeking can be had. It can be had in the words of Asaph through that sanctuary, that tabernacle of old, that temple where God dwelt within Israel's borders. Who is so great a God as our God? A God who does wonders and declares strength among the peoples, who redeems his people, Jacob and Joseph's sons. Asaph trains his eyes on the incarnation. I must deal with God. And to deal with God means dealing with Jesus. Because he is God in the flesh. If I am to know God, then the only God who is at the Father's side must make him known to me, John 1.18. Do I want an answer to my long dark night? Do I want dawn to come? Then I must look to Christ. For God's way, truth, and life is Christ Jesus. For his way is in the sanctuary. God dwells among us. He is Emmanuel. And we see his wonders in Jesus. We see his strength in Jesus. We see his arm by which he redeems his people is Jesus. But Asaph can only mean this through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. What Asaph has himself in mind in verse 15 is the sons of Jacob and Joseph. That is the Egypt experience. By naming Jacob and Joseph specifically, Asaph brings to our mind the descendants of Israel, the Israelites, those who wrestle with God, those whose life is not all about what they earn and eat and how they live, but whose life is primarily and fundamentally about a relationship with God, the Most High God. This Jacob went down to Egypt Does that make any sense? It shouldn't. Abraham was promised the land of Canaan. He died and was buried in the cave of Machpelah in the field east of Mamre. Isaac inherited the promise to receive the land of Canaan. He died and was buried in the cave of Machpelah east of Mamre. Jacob takes his whole family down to Egypt. Not Canaan. Not the land of promise. And thus in the land of Egypt they avoid starvation. Because God saves in the weirdest ways. By taking them out of the land of promise. He saved them from famine. By taking Joseph out of the family. By disinheriting Joseph. By pretending Joseph was dead. Boy, there's a type in shadow. Jesus didn't pretend, did he? He was dead. 
Joseph goes down to Egypt. And there in that national grave, he prepared a banquet, a feast for his famine-soaked family. That he might save them through his sufferings. This is what it is to be the people of God. To discover that Egypt is a place of salvation. Who knew? To discover that God can also bring us up out of Egypt in due time. This is the way of God in the water. Verses 16 through 19. The waters saw you, they saw you and were afraid. The Red Sea saw God and they parted. The depths trembled, the clouds spouted water, the skies sent out a sound. Thunder was in the whirlwind. Arrows and lightning flashed about and lit up the world. The earth shook violently under the presence of God. And God's way was in the sea. In this ancient Hebrew culture, nobody knew how to swim. In this ancient Hebrew culture, a giant big body of water and trying to cross it is certain death. And an army behind you, the great army of Pharaoh who wants to bring you back into slavery and kill you, is also certain death. So Israel is now sandwiched between certain death and certain death. And God splits the Red Sea. He splits the grave. He splits death open. And he walks through at the head of Israel. And the water flees from the toes of God. And Israel passes through behind him safely. Your footsteps were not known. You would have never guessed this is the way God would have worked salvation. Who would have imagined that Jacob's house should be saved from famine by hiding out in Egypt? Who would have guessed that God would have gotten Israel out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea and having them walk through on dry land? Friends, let it suffice to say that number one, our God knows how to save his people. And number two, we don't. And we must trust him. We must trust Him when it's hard. Because walking through, we always have the cute picture, right? We always have the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments picture, right? There's a wall of water and a wall of water and everybody's singing and everybody's excited. And they're all walking through. How many thousands of Israelites do you think needed to be drugged through that Red Sea? Because walking through it seemed like a really bad idea. I mean, seriously. How many of us need to be drug, kicking and screaming through sanctification? Because God's plan for our salvation seems like a bad idea. And this is what the psalm teaches us. To pray faith. A real faith. A faith not in what we see, not in what we feel, not in what we experience, but in God's ways. That is Christ. His way is in the sanctuary. So we worship this year. His way is in the sea. So we wait for His providence to unfold this year. But there's a last little gem in verse 20. You led your people like a flock. 
Our Father is a good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he leads his people like a flock. You, his people, we, his congregation, are his flock. And he leads us. But notice the instrument by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, these don't seem like a good choice, do they? I mean, have you guys read the stories of Moses and Aaron? Moses is a murderer. Kills an Egyptian in cold blood. You know how he solves that problem? He runs away. And hides out for 40 years in the wilderness. Moses is told to speak to the rock. He strikes it violently with his staff. And cannot go into the land of promise. Shall we speak of Aaron? Who at the foot of Mount Sinai is waiting 40 days and 40 nights for Moses to come back. With the written word of God in his hands. In the meantime, Aaron's down there with hammer and nails. Fashioning his golden calf. God saves in weird ways. He chooses the most unlikely leaders to shepherd the flock. Pretty sure I was going to get an amen from at least two of you. He chooses the most unlikely leaders to shepherd his flock. Oh, praise God. Which brings us back to Jeduthun. If this is Asaph's psalm, why is it dedicated to Jeduthun? Because nobody prays like this without someone holding his hand. And that's Jeduthun. Beloved, we're starting 2024. And we don't know what the scroll has in it. But we know who's holding the scroll. Do you know who's holding you? Do you have a friend in the faith? Someone who will pray with you in the long dark night. Someone who will listen to your unutterable questions. And say, I'm not afraid. And then someone who will show you the way. The way whose name is Christ. Jesus. Do you have a Jeduthun in your life? Do you have a Moses and an Aaron? Someone through whom God can lead you. Who will take you by heart and by hand and say, it's okay, dawn's coming. Dawn's coming. Do you have a prayer partner? Do you have a Bible reading partner? Do you have a midweek? Don't do this alone. Beloved, we have a God who saves in weird ways. And it confuses us and it frightens us. And that's okay. So let's trust Him in the hard times. And the way to trust him in the hard times is to have a friend with us when the times are hard. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the promise that we have seen. That our Jesus is with us. That he is our friend. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we pray that you would forgive us that our souls have sought so many comforts in this life. And instead of relentlessly praying and wrestling with you to seek comfort in you. And so we ask, Father, that through the teaching and preaching of this psalm, through the singing of this psalm, we might be drawn to you, united to you, and blessed by you. Our Father, we ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.